Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod. This is an interview with Waxwing, a very early Bitcoiner and a really interesting character from a lot of perspectives. On the one hand, he is someone who encountered Bitcoin, fell down the rabbit hole hard, and as a result, used his technical background to become an amateur, in the best sense of the word, cryptographer, and build novel cryptographic schemes on top of Bitcoin, probably most well known for Join Market, the maker-taker coin-join protocol, but many other things besides, and he continues to develop things on top of Bitcoin, such as Pathcoin, which we discuss in this interview. But Waxwing is also really interesting because when I met him a year ago, it was clear that he listens to all sorts of Bitcoin media. He's really interested in what people are saying about Bitcoin, what the conversations are, and he has been doing that for a long time. And so Waxwing's thoughts, perspectives, remembrances about debates in the Bitcoin community, this is kind of a window into our past. And I think it's really interesting to hear it from him. He was there, he was listening, and he's had a lot of time to think about the context. So I really hope you enjoy this interview with Waxwing. I'm sitting down with Waxwing, one of the original cypherpunks. No? Do you? <laughs> well, no, I definitely not. <laughs> okay. Second generation uh, cypher- yeah, cypherpunk? That, that's a valid question. Like, well, even whether I'm a cypherpunk at all is a very valid question. But uh, certainly the, the original generation of cypherpunks, I'd say, were like the late 80s, uh, early 90s. And then it sort of continued through the 90s. And it kind of sort of died out in the early, mid 2000s, sort of. I believe I'm subscribed to the cypherpunk mailing list. And these days, it's just complaints about Bitcoin. Interesting. Wow. I did not know that. Because it kind of feels like Bitcoin, in a way, killed or resolved the cypherpunk movement. Mm. But you are aware of that history and you have contributed to it because you're a professional cryptographer. Well, nobody pays me, so I would argue I'm an amateur cryptographer. (laughs) In the correct sense of the word, amateur meaning a lover of. Exactly, like the 19th century Victorian (laughs) sense, where a professional is looked down on, but an amateur is moved by something higher, maybe? Exactly, yeah. Let's 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 say. <laughs> but what moved you? What moved me? Oh, yeah, question. Well, Bitcoin is a simple answer, really. I mean, that's the sort of connecting tying point of all these threads, isn't it? Because as you say, there is a sense, very arguable, in which Bitcoin was the kind of um, crystallization of the entire cypherpunk movement. And by the same token, um, Bitcoin has had a tremendous and dramatic effect on cryptography as a as a discipline. You know, um, especially if you include all the if you're kind enough to include all the altcoins because you know there's a lot of much more wild and wacky cryptography you know zcash and things on ethereum and multiple other blockchains that are doing really crazy things with cryptography nowadays so what's my point so yeah bitcoin is a kind of the connecting point that ties all these threads together isn't it and in my personal case you were mentioning you know my what what pr- prompted me while i was somewhat interested in cryptography as somebody with a background in mathematics and physics but let's say mathematics in this case I took a very passing mild interest reading a couple of popular descriptions of public key cryptography and, and so on in, in the earlier days and, and being certainly interested by the political phenomenon that occurred in the 90s with the problem of what's it called export control of cryptography. It was all very like minor interest. It was just something that seemed interesting, but I didn't pursue it. But when Bitcoin came along, it was like, oh, actually, now I understand that all this open source, all of this peer to peer and all of this public key cryptography all ties together in a sense that it creates this whole new vast field of possibilities for you know us to change the way the world works. And cryptography is right at the heart of that. And that's why I was motivated from that point on to actually study it in detail. Even even though the first kind of project I was involved in after I found out about Bitcoin wasn't a Bitcoin project. It was it was called TLS Notary. And it was about the idea of sort of enabling people to verify cryptographically that a web page had been, had been delivered from a particular website with a particular SSL certificate. Um, the motivation for that, although that project itself was just cryptography at the level of TLS and not Bitcoin, the motivation was Bitcoin because we were interested in the question of how can people like transfer bank wires in, in a peer-to-peer way. It was kind of a bit over-optimistic as a plan, but it still exists as a project today without without my contribution. There are people still working on that same idea today, using even more advanced cryptography than we were using back in 2013, 2014 on it. 
Yeah, and I just continued. That's the trend that started, and it continued. I, I started working on coin join projects, and and got more and more interested in various different clever constructs using cryptography on Bitcoin. Things like confidential transactions interested me a lot. Uh, I wrote sort of papers about that kind of thing, and and then Schnorr came along, and there was a whole explosion of all that stuff as well. So that's some of the background. <laughs> and in the early days of Bitcoin, pre twenty thirteen, it seems like. There were a lot of the people on the cypherpunk mailing list were part of this movement, but it seems like it brought in other people, perhaps you, yeah. perhaps others. Yeah. Since then, more people have joined the Bitcoin community, if you will. And I imagine it's changed over time. Have you sort of watched that change, kept up with it, or is it just something in the background? Do, do you have a sense of mm. where it's going now that Bitcoin is legally adopted in El Salvador and people can interact with it in their daily lives without concern about the government response, perhaps? How the sort of community has changed is exactly like the, in a vague sense. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I would say I do keep an eye on things in the sense of, you know, even from the very early days, I was an avid consumer of Bitcoin media, such as that produced by our current sound engineer. Uh, so a friend of yours. So uh, yeah, there were there were there wasn't much Bitcoin media in the early days, and and the, the community. So so from that point of view, of course, that makes it a little more difficult to have a community, right? If there isn't like these central points of whether it be I don't know Twitter, uh, Twitter famous people or you know celebrities generally, that there, there wasn't much of that. But you generally the the community was very much in an online forum form. So it was principally started out with Bitcoin Talks forum. And a lot of the community kind of moved to Reddit after a while. And it was it kind of got more fragmented after that. And at some point, it became Twitter as well. That was much later, I suppose. And I imagine that the medium around which the community coalesces changes the way they interact. Because when I read archived Bitcoin talk threads, there are one-off snarky responses here and there. But in general, it's more of a long-form method of communication you can't immediately respond you have to sort of it, it, it's more clunky whereas twitter is sort of poppy engagement and so has that changed the conversation in a way that you've noticed mm. i mean yes simple answer is yes in the sense that both bitcoin talk and reddit had that property of being forums in which there was you know the standard forum architecture of as you say you can write long form posts and then you have threads and so on and so undoubtedly that must have been a factor in the kind of overall feeling of the kind of conversations you were having compared to what you would have on on twitter my point about that is that i think the nuance is that don't forget the scale issue like Went pre certainly pre 2013, which is I, I sort of got in in some vague sense to Bitcoin around about the beginning of 2013. But certainly pre 2013, it was a very small community, very small. Uh, and you know, you can see that from looking at the the forums. There was only a few people involved in in the discussions. So when you're at a very small scale, you're inevitably going to have a very different social dynamic to once you get to tens of thousands of people or, or even more. So it's kind of difficult to disentangle. Is it the medium that's causing it or is it the scale that's causing the change in the quality of um, discourse? Because as the forum for conversation about Bitcoin changed, there was also the advent of altcoins. And people realized that you could fork Bitcoin, you could create other projects with a sort of similar consensus mechanism and other properties. Did this sort of dilute the Bitcoin community or was there a sense that Bitcoin was one of the coin projects or was it always Bitcoin and then everything else? And maybe in the beginning, people tried both, but at a certain point, there seemed to be kind of a hardening line where you had Bitcoiners and you had Bitcoiners, perhaps. Do you yeah, have that people sense? certainly weren't using the term Bitcoin back in those days. Uh, altcoin was the thing that people said. And um but yeah, the, the sense of a schism arose fairly. I mean, I, I, I couldn't pinpoint it at all. I'm sure I wasn't around because it was probably like 2011, 2012, when the very first suggestions of certain kinds of altcoins were existing. Well, theoretically, you know, Satoshi famously proposed the first altcoin because he talked about DNS and the, the Namecoin idea. And Namecoin was created ridiculously early, at least a primitive form of it. And I, I do remember things like uh, the first proof of stake coin, which was called uh, Peercoin, I want to say. I don't remember. Anyway, there were various 
altcoins have sprung up in that sort of let's say early 2013 and pre that period and i think the sort of the watershed period was sometime around towards the end of 2013 when there was a massive price bubble and the first relatively big mainstream awareness event i think was was late 2013 and around that time, inevitably, <laughs> people started developing things like, here's a piece of software where you can just insert your parameters, you know, your block time and your reward schedule, and then you can make your own out- altcoin with one click, you know. And they were literally people were selling that software in late 2013. There was, there was a lot of reactions. There was, there was amusement, there was bewilderment, there was anger and hatred towards people who create these things which are, you know, traitorous to Bitcoin's vision. There was all kinds of a spectrum of, of reactions, and I probably fit more into the category of people who kind of somewhat resent it and are quite annoyed about it, because I think classic argument is, is you know, I, I remember these emails from various mailing lists. Uh, I think it might have been Adam B. Levine. You might remember that name, Adam B. Levine, who's 2013. Um, I mean, he's still around today, but he's just at that time, he was a, he was a prominent figure because of the, the podcast that he did. He wrote an email on some mailing list where it was like, oh, these people who think we shouldn't create altcoins, they're so greedy. The only thing that motivates them is they want to make sure that their Bitcoins go up in value even more. Of course, funnily enough, is often the case with these things. It's exactly the same argument on the other side of the argument. We're, we're annoyed with them because they're just doing it out of greed. They're only creating these altcoins because they're greedy and they want to make more money. And of course, you know, you can always see the worst side of the alternative position. But from my point of view, yeah, it, it, it was kind of, it wasn't that, oh no, they're taking away money from the Bitcoin project. It's, it's that they're taking away that the cohesiveness that I felt was necessary for Bitcoin to even have a chance to succeed. Because it seemed even in those days, and maybe it still does, it seemed almost crazy to think that a non-state money could survive and thrive in a world of such, you know, extreme state power as it has grown into in the, during the, in quotes, fiat period, you know, there's the whole 1971 thing, right? You know, what happened since then? Does it still seem preposterous that Bitcoin could succeed at this point or more likely inevitable? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I overplayed it when I said, if I, if I said preposterous or crazy, because I mean, it's the same problem always with Bitcoin when you come into it. It's like trying to fit it into your head is, could this possibly be a real thing? That's the question you have even at a technical level, because you read the white paper. And I think I mentioned this in my talk. It's ridiculous. It says that every single person is going to hold a real-time replicated database of every single transaction. You may have forgotten how ridiculous that sounded to you when you first found out about it, and it still sounds marginally ridiculous. And a lot of the sort of technical debate that goes on in Bitcoin is all about how do we get around that fundamentally ridiculous notion? You know, what what are L2s? They're all about how to get around that fundamentally ridiculous notion. And so maybe not only at that technical level, but also at the, I don't know, philosophical level, it's it's borderline. You know, when I talk to members of my family or just random people back home and I say, you know, talk about Bitcoin, they say, you know, what do we need a new kind of money for? That's kind of a bit weird, isn't it? It's, it's crazy to, to invent a new kind of money. For that to succeed, I mean, when, when companies try to do it, it generally fails. You know, when companies try and say, oh, here's our new form of Amazon bucks, people don't want to use a company's money. So the issue of creating a new form of money is intrinsically quite a little bit borderline crazy. And sorry, I, I blethered on, but I didn't actually answer your question. Was it, is it less crazy now? Um, it's, I mean, Lindy effect, blah, blah, blah. It's a bit less crazy every year. It's a bit of a bigger market. It's a, big, a bit of a larger number of people. I would say it's You've got to agree that it's less crazy, but how much less crazy? I don't know. I don't know. And you talked about how reading the white paper, even at a technical level, it seems a bit crazy. That implies a vision for Bitcoin. And I think in general, the white paper describes peer-to-peer, non-state money, and it kind of leaves it at that. And you can kind of, you can sort of infer what that implies, which I think generally suggests more human freedom, more optionality, perhaps clawing back some of the encroachment of states that have gotten significantly larger over the course of our lifetimes. But has that vision changed as the community has changed and as the technical development around Around Bitcoin and cryptography has changed? I don't think so. It's maybe not a very interesting answer, but I feel like the vision that, well, we can't speak for each other, right? I mean, we all have a slightly different perspective on it. So I'm has, sure has pe- your vision changed? Yeah, I, like- I, I, don't, I don't think so. But I will qualify that in one way, which is that 
even from the early days, and we were talking about the early days and how it was different then, I felt like I was a bit of a, yeah, I was a bit of an outsider in one sense that I saw Bitcoin much more as a kind of heavy, hard money, which is kind of, it does in my mind align with the concept of cash because the real important thing about cash is that it's a bearer instrument. Whereas a lot of the people in the early community, a very common sort of site on the Bitcoin subreddit back in the day was, oh, wow, we got our bar to accept Bitcoin, you know, and it was a big thing to try and push Bitcoin on people, especially merchants to try and get it used as a currency. And while I'm not in the camp that says, oh, Bitcoin's just savings, just hodl, 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 don't ever use it, you're an idiot if you spend it. I'm not in that camp at all. I'm quite the opposite. On the other hand, never, I never thought that it was principally a consumer payments mechanism because it doesn't have the right properties for that. One analogy that I don't often mention, but I think is a really good one, is um, in the Soviet Union, in Soviet Union in the 80s, let's say 70s period, when it was a really kind of stagnant, terrible system. US dollars played an important role as, you know, they, they called it hard currency. And not only not only uh, Russia, but, you know, well, yeah, I guess the whole Eastern Bloc, they called it hard currency. And it's a concept of here's a kind of money that actually functions very well as money, but it's very serious and it's very dangerous to use in the sense that the state's against you, you know. But its hardness and its seriousness is what, that's to me what makes it cash because it's the fact that it's, you know, in, in Taj Dreiger's phrase, it's the currency of enemies, right? You, you, you don't, it's not about trust. It's not a credit relationship. It's a very raw, hard money. And to whatever extent Bitcoin succeeds, in my opinion, it succeeds in being that, not in being the thing that you pay for coffee with. And I know that used to be just a meme, but, you know, I, I pay for coffee and beer all day with it. Talking about this nuance in understanding what cash is, this idea of hard currency and that there might be a softer currency on top of that. It makes me think of the Bitcoin cash debate and how at that time in the history. Sorry, of did you mean the Bcash debate? Bcash. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, that's a joke that doesn't work anymore, right? <laughs> no. Three or four years ago, it would have been funny. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We're leaving that in. Um, because at that point in Bitcoin's adoption, blocks were not full. And so there was a generation of businesses and entrepreneurs that grew up, in a sense, in a low-fee environment where block space didn't seem like a huge constraint. And then it became a constraint because Bitcoin blocks barely scale. There is not space for a lot of transactions. And there is a moment when the community using Bitcoin will eat up all that block space, and now we need a fee market. And this seems to have been a turning point in Bitcoin history and a fracturing of the community, where members who saw Bitcoin as a tool for buying coffee split off or advocated for larger blocks. Yes. And there was a core group, which I think you were a part of, that perceived Bitcoin to not scale so easily, that the trade-offs to scaling were huge and maybe even undermined Bitcoin's ability to be decentralized and thus exist. Yes. But it required thinking about ways to get data off chain, more complicated scaling solutions. Can you talk about that moment or how you perceived it unfolding? Was it sudden or was it a slow realization that it did not scale at the layer one? I'm, I'm, I'm torn to dis if, if, I'm, if I want to say if I think it was a sudden change in like my mental outlook or a, or a slow change or if there was any change at all. I, it's really hard to say. Um, the community as a whole sort of slowly brewed up into this conflict over a period of years. I think that's a pretty clear fact. There were very animated and heated debates around this topic on the Bitcoin mailing list, even from, I want to say, early 2015, maybe even earlier. But myself, I never really changed my mind that much on the general concept that you're, you're describing, that, that we don't have the ability to scale on the base layer such that it can be used as an everyday payments system. Uh, at least for small amounts. Do you think that something was lost when Bitcoiners who were more interested in making day-to-day -day transactions with Bitcoin spun off into a separate community and then other projects potentially? Was something lost? I mean, you could argue that something was gained, right? That, that there was a sense of people waking up to the hard problem of Bitcoin, so to speak. You know, the philosophers out there, they might think of the hard problem of consciousness. You know, this is a very, very hard, difficult problem of how 
does a system like that enable, let's say, hundreds of millions to billions of people to actually use it? Because clearly, I mean, this is the part that I never really understood about their perspective is that it clearly doesn't scale eventually in the long term. Maybe it could have scaled. You know, the, the arguments, a lot of them were about factors of two, factors of four, factors of eight, maybe factors of 20. You know, you can have those arguments, but they just lead you into a cul-de-sac, right? Because if you increase Bitcoin's transactability volume, however you define that, by a factor of three or a factor of 10, well, great, but you're just creating this massive problem for yourself because obviously if there is a big sense of growth, it's going to keep going and, and we, we, we eventually want this to be an actual currency, which means we should have you know, technically all those three properties, right? The, the, the store of value, the, the unit of account, and the medium of exchange thing. But how does transactability on the base layer affect those three monetary properties? Well, it affects the medium of exchange property, right? Most, most, so you're I focusing guess, on medium of exchange mm. at the cost of network centralization. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm not, but right. <laughs> I, you're, you're talking about like how this, yeah, this debate arose. I don't know whether I don't know what to say about this. It's it's one of the questions you're raising is is it a problem that a whole sort of class of people, a whole group of people that felt alienated enough by the fact that the system as a whole chose not to expand the base capacity that they chose to just go off and even make an alternative version of Bitcoin and tried very strongly to argue that it was the real Bitcoin because it adhered to the concept of peer-to-peer -peer digital cash, which as we've just discussed, you know, the question is, what does cash really mean? Is it a problem? I, I don't know. I, I, I feel it's almost it's almost a positive because because either because I'm just saying those people were just fundamentally wrong for the reasons we've discussed that I think the medium exchange aspect has to go into higher layers. Um, or, yeah, or they they were just they were some of them were kind of bad actors as well. But that's that's more sort of tied up with this whole thing of like people who wanted to see Bitcoin as a kind of a business opportunity more than they wanted to see it as this base layer protocol for changing the way that we use money. Uh, I'm thinking obviously I'm thinking of people like Roger Ver, but he, in a way he's one of the best examples because I actually do think there were some positives about him. Some people like really go a lot further than me and they say he was he was amazing. He was actually Bitcoin Jesus. He brought so many people into Bitcoin. And I think, ah, I don't know, he wasn't actually that good of a spokesman. What he was, was he was a very energetic salesman. He was always out there, always making the, the pitch for Bitcoin. But his pitch always included the concept of it being a basically freely transactable currency, as in free monetarily to, to transact in. He was competing with credit card processing yeah, he, fees. Yeah, he saw it as competing, exactly. He saw it as competing with credit card processors. And I think he was just fundamentally wrong. And when eventually when the community, you know, nature finds a way, there's that, was that thing, a uh, necessity is the mother of, of invention. When eventually this incredibly weird and, and esoteric idea of the Lightning Network was, was published and over a period of like two years turned into a thing that actually could happen. He was, I feel it was almost like sour grapes on his part, but he found reasons to think that's just crap. Whereas actually that was the thing he was waiting for. He wasn't actually waiting for Bitcoin. He was waiting for the Lightning Network. Oh, okay, maybe Lightning's not perfect. Maybe we're going to find a better way of doing the same thing in a couple of years. I don't know, ARC, whatever the new sexy new thing is, you know. But surely that's what he really should have been looking for. And the fact that but in his mind, he was tied into Bitcoin. And then, of course, being a sort of sales slash business oriented person, he ended up heavily into the altcoin space, at least from an investment point of view. And, you know, good luck to him. He, he got very rich off it. But I was never a fan of him, really, to be honest. And with the advent of the Lightning Network, especially here in El Salvador, when we go to Bitcoin Beach or we can pay with Bitcoin at some merchants here in San Salvador, does that seem like a turning point for you in that now there is a Bitcoin layer that can offer that kind of softer transactional cash service? Um, yes. I mean, my first experiences using Lightning to pay for a beer or to pay for a coffee were at meetups and conferences. For example, in my hometown of London, even as late as 2021, 2022, it was awfully difficult to find any opportunity to pay for even a beer with a Lightning payment. I remember a meetup uh, somewhere in London um, where yeah, it, was, it was a Bitcoin meetup, actually. There was a lot of Outcoin as, as well. But but then, you know, I went to the bar and they said, oh, yeah, you can pay for your beer with Bitcoin. And when I went to the bar, the dirty look the owner gave me was just incredible for just trying. Well, because he didn't really want to actually accept Bitcoin because it, it didn't fit into his workflow with his books. And by the way, you see that as well 
even here sometimes it's much less common here but you'll see it sometimes if you go to some small fancy restaurant and oh let's pay for our steaks with bitcoin and this actually happened you know last year it was great and we so we, we encountered two problems i mean the, the owner said yeah yeah you can pay for your steaks with bitcoin we encountered two problems first when we went to pay after the meal the total bill was in the hundreds of dollars because it was like really high quality steaks you know and a lot of people we went to pay the bill and um First problem was he had a Chivo wallet. And so we looked at each other and we were like, oh my God. Because what happens if this payment goes wrong? Because I don't know if people you know, listening understand this, but Chivo is like the government supported wallet for Bitcoin and Lightning here in El Salvador. And it has a mixed reputation at best. There are a lot of problems with it here and there, and it's kind of difficult to pin it down, but sometimes payments don't work. So that was our first problem. Uh, uh, and I guess, the, yeah, the second problem was he actually made a similar comment that he was kind of a bit reluctant because he didn't like problems it caused him with all of his like accounting. I'm not a restauranter or even a businessman, so I don't exactly know the details, but there's some extra friction he perceived there, which, uh, but I, I don't want to give the impression to people that it's really hard. It's always, it's always going to be really hard like that to pay. Actually, by the way, that payment worked just to complete the story. It did work, but we, we what we did was we sent an original, like, uh, I think it was like a $50 payment first off just to check, and then that worked, and then we sent the rest. And by the way, I've, I've used that technique in other situations. Like, for example, I bought a PC in a local uh, store here, and I did it was a large amount, and the guy said, oh, do you want to pay with Lightning? I said, eh, it's quite a lot of money. Maybe we should use on-chain. Also, you're using Chivo, so I'm just going to send you like $50 first, and let's see what happens. Um, but again, it did actually work in that case. So there's a lot of positive stories about paying with Lightning. And indeed, on chain here, you know, a lot of things are really easy here. Paying bills here is better than paying bills in England. I pay, okay, you know, you can say, well, it's not as good because you're using a third party, but I can pay through BitRefill with Lightning all of my bills without entering any credit card details, which is a horrible, horrible process. We all hate, I'm sure. And it basically, I don't remember the last time it ever failed or there was any problem with it. So there's lots of positives like that that come out of just kind of arranging your life where Bitcoin is part of it here. And is Lightning a good payment method here? I think it takes some time to get used to it. I think the people who come to the conference, such as yourselves, you get some of the picture, but it's only when you stay for a little while and you go through an iteration process of, well, I tried this and that wasn't very, that was a bit janky. Like, for example, using the ATM. When I first tried to use it, I had problems because I didn't understand certain details of the process about how they deal with confirmations. Oh, and by the way, they're adding Lightning to the ATMs now. And I tried it at the conference and it worked worked well. Um, so hopefully that will be a way better experience if your plan is just to withdraw cash, which in my opinion is the more useful side of using these ATMs so you can pay people in cash on the street. Uh, certainly you can buy Bitcoin with the ATMs as well, though, but there are other ways to buy Bitcoin. I am waffling, but you're asking me about Lightning and El Salvador. And I think it's it's a lot better than you might imagine. I think a lot of people have a meme out in the world that Lightning doesn't work. It's a joke. Haha, ha, Lightning, nobody's using Lightning. I use it all that all the time. I use it all the time. It's a big part of my life. And I have to admit, though, I've tended to focus nowadays on using Phoenix, although I have tried many other sort of models. It's just that Phoenix has tended to be the most reliable for me. It's interesting to hear... Because on the one hand, as someone who runs a Lightning node, who participates in podcasting 2.0, and so we, we will receive Lightning boosts as people listen to this show. The complexities of managing that Lightning node setup were a bit steep initially. Now it just works. And now I find myself completely agreeing with you that every time I have to put in a credit card number, my soul dies a little. Mm-hmm. I don't think we're being biased to say that Lightning is a better payments technology than a credit card processing system. There's definitely trade-offs, but overall for myself, I already thought that back in 2018 when admittedly it was janky as hell and it worked like 35% of the time. But I already thought this is just better because principally because of that, yeah, as you say, the, the, the personal information aspect, that the friction of that is just so extreme. And it's also the permissioned nature. So after all, we, we might forget if we live in, if we get accustomed to living in a certain place and living in a certain way, making the certain kind of payments, we might forget that if your life is a bit more complex, you might like using different bank accounts, different countries and different kinds of payments. You might sometimes find payments get blocked with a credit card system. There are all kinds of problems like that. And the worst thing about those kinds of problems is you'll never really understand what's gone wrong. You won't be able to figure it out. Or even worse, of course, is you get your bank account blocked and they won't tell you why. That can happen. Well, and you'll also never have fraud with Lightning. Yeah. And there's no fraud. I mean, you might, there's ways of losing money, I guess, but fraud isn't really the thing. Yeah. Because of the cryptographic verification element of Lightning. Yeah. Bitcoin has obviously come a long way from its early experimental phase where a small group of users enjoyed a chain with zero congestion, zero fees. 
fees rose, layer one scaling was not feasible without sacrificing the vision of Bitcoin. Lightning is here. It's an effective payment technology, but fees are still rising. The mempool is full. Very full today, right? And much of that has to do with Taproot and the way that Taproot enabled new use cases, the ability to put arbitrary data on chain, admittedly in a responsible way in that it is not part of the chain state, but you disagree. I strongly disagree. Well, I'm, it's unfortunate because it's, it's being said by basically almost everyone all the time. And you might accuse me of splitting hairs and I'm, I'm being pedantic, but it's not true in my opinion at all to say that Taproot enabled the JPEG slash ordinal craze because technically speaking, the amount of witness data you can put into blocks, in, well, into individual transactions and therefore into blocks hasn't changed with Taproot. It made a very minor difference in terms of the ease with which you can program that process. So you can create single UTXOs or sing single spendings of UTXOs that contain a very large amount of witness data because of some details of Taproot. But Taproot didn't change the budget of how much witness data we're allowed to have in a block. That was with SegWit. So if, if we want to pin the blame for JPEGs on something, it should be SegWit, not Taproot. And, you know, people might argue with me in a very, very technical way and say that, well, actually, there's this tiny amount of transaction overhead and blah, 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 but it's only like a few percent difference. Ultimately, that change came with SegWit because there's a witness discount which allows you to put a lot of data at a lower fee rate than you could otherwise. I'm sorry if that is some perceived by some as technical, but I think it's important because there's this, there's this meme going around, which actually I think, again, is totally incorrect, is that Taproot went in with basically no review. I was part of a group of, I think it might have been as, it was, it was definitely over 100 people, but I don't know if it was like 200, I can't remember exactly, who were split into multiple groups who over a period of months looked in detail at every single aspect of every one of the Taproot BIPs. And this was a year before it was activated, by the way, because we, we, we didn't expect there would be such a big controversy about the activation of Taproot. We expected it would go in within a month or two. But we looked at every single uh, technical aspect. And of course, that doesn't mean the review was perfect or the things weren't missed. But this idea that Taproot just was shoved through by some elite and nobody even looked at it is absolute nonsense. And it really makes me angry, actually, because Taproot is maybe one of the best examples of the proper open source process of review actually succeeding. And people will then use, because it's just convenient for the narrative of that, they'll then say, oh, yeah, but and then that's so that's why Taproot just let in JPEGs. It's not true at all. All of that data space already existed in SegWit. It's just like 5% more difficult to write the program. It's like three extra lines in the program so that you could put the JPEG into multiple inputs instead of one input. So by that logic, do you think there were issues or maybe a rush around SegWit activation because of the block size war that maybe allowed unintended consequences to those That's decisions? That's a much more reasonable argument. Although it's obviously a bit difficult, more difficult, it's further back in history. And as you say, there was a whole competing set of forces going on there that were very complex. The argument about why is the witness discount, depending on how you count it, 0.25 or 75% or whatever the number is, it's basically 0.25 weight for the witness compared to the rest of the data in the transaction. This point came up actually, uh, it was a while ago since I did this podcast, but like a year ago or something with uh, Andrew Polster and uh, Rodolfo Novak. And we were we were wiseacring acring similarly about, well, why was the witness discount 0.25? And there was some vague sense in which this, you want the cost of the creation of outputs to be similar to the cost of creation of inputs. Because if you have an imbalance where it costs less to create the outputs of the transactions than to create the inputs, then there's going to be a tendency to create more and more outputs over time, which is going to lead to UTXO bloat. So I'm not going to attempt to defend a very complicated thesis here, but just a general sense of, yes, I would definitely agree with your characterization that there was a less careful review of SegWit, especially if you consider it modulo, how complex of a change SegWit was. Taproot is very technically sophisticated, but it doesn't change Bitcoin's structure. At least it doesn't change Bitcoin structure in the way that SegWit did. That was a massive change to Bitcoin structure. The way transactions are put together, the pieces of the transactions changed. And then, of course, as, you, as, as we're discussing, there was a change to how much cost is, in quotes, assigned to different parts of the transaction, which didn't exist before. So that change was the one that enabled, in my opinion, JPEGs and whatever the like we're, we're calling it nowadays. And I certainly don't remember. I mean, it was years and years ago, and I wasn't particularly involved in the review process. Well, I wasn't involved in the review process at all. I just was an outsider. But I don't remember any of them talking about that question. I mean, people did discuss the, the witness discount, though. 
but it wasn't ever really clearly laid out why it should be a particular number. It's a very complicated question for sure. Right. That's an interesting perspective because there is this meme right now that taproot activation or the taproot review was rushed and that justified maybe the resistance to its activation. And now ordinals are an unintended consequence. And so that's a really interesting and important context that SegWit was actually is the real mechanism for ordinal inscriptions because of the witness discount. I'm turning into the grumpy old man, but it really annoys me because it really annoys me, especially because I I hear people who are very technically competent making this argument. I have no idea why they're saying it. Yes, you can make an argument of like five, 10% more costs if you don't use Taproot, let's say. But is that really the difference between somebody putting on a like a $100 transaction for a JPEG and not? I mean, no, that's not the reason. I mean, whereas if they tried to do it before SegWit, it would be like, it would just be it would just be way way harder i mean would four times harder i suppose yeah yeah but does this speak to a growing resistance to further soft fork activation and given the time it took to activate taproot it suggests that each soft fork seems to be getting harder absolutely yeah i think it does speak to a general i can only speak from a very vague perception you know, i'm not on X every day, or as we call it now, right? Weapon X. I mean, I use Nostar. I kind of like Nostar, but it's still small. So yeah, so I'm not on there every day. I'm not like in the thick of the everyday discussion is what I'm trying to get at. But I will say that my perception is that there's in the background a sense from many, let's say, ordinary Bitcoiners, let's say not the, not the coders, that they don't like a move towards more sophistication. They don't like the idea that Bitcoin will be used for smart contracts. And you might remember from my talk, I was briefly mentioning how it's kind of silly because actually smart contracts are intrinsic. They're the simplest kind of smart contract is intrinsic to what Bitcoin is. Uh, but they don't like that those ideas. And that, that, that it's that, that idea that it's a, it's a kind of Bitcoin purism, right? And my argument, which I didn't have time to explain in my talk, but my argument is that that attitude is wrong because of the dynamics of what we discussed in the previous half an hour, where we were talking about problem of the cash-like properties of the chain being such that we need things like the smart contracts of Lightning to enable an actual medium of exchange characteristic in this system. So we have the cash, in my version of the concept of cash, already in the base chain, but that consumer payments network thing needs smart contracts. And Lightning is a fairly primitive, but still it unquestionably is a smart contract design where you have a penalty mechanism which is enforced by cryptography. I mean, that's the whole thing about smart contracts is you enforce adjudication with cryptography, not with human adjudication. So that's what Lightning does. There's a perception in the, I, my perception of the general Bitcoin populace, certainly not all of them, but that's a big, big, fra- uh, maybe a big minority or even a majority don't like the idea that there's more of a push towards any increased sophistication because they want Bitcoin to be this very pure thing. But in my opinion, that's in contradiction with Bitcoin's actual possibility of success, which intrinsically will rely on some level of sophistication and will allow off-chain contracting of various forms to work, including Lightning and maybe including more more things than Lightning. Because Lightning, after all, even as the original proposers of the Lightning Network, in their very first talk about it in San Francisco back in the day, they were like, guys, this is not going to scale to the whole planet. It doesn't work. There aren't enough UTXOs. It isn't remotely possible for every person to use Lightning directly. But we're proposing it as an improvement over what we have now. And unquestionably, it was, you know, Um, but we need more is my point. I've heard a sarcastic criticism of Bitcoin, that Bitcoin is speed running the history of financial scams. But in this conversation, it seems that we've speed run financial history. We've actually moved in a sense from a hard money standard where the amount of hard currency on-chain UTXOs in circulation was sufficient for the population using it. The limit of that was quickly hit. New technology was developed, Lightning, to enable a more consumer cash use case. The base chain remains hard money. And now we seem to be fast approaching certain technical limitations of Lightning, maybe not in terms of UTXO exhaustion, but at this point, the interaction between Lightning channels, force closes, and a full mempool can lead to situations where some of the security assurances of Lightning break down. What is the next step here? Is it obvious at this point, or are we still in an early stage of discussing that? I think we can solidly say it is not obvious. (laughs) Yeah, like in other words, how would we move to a system that 
is less fragile because, you, as you point out, and you know, people like Roger Ver back in the day pointed out the same thing: that oh, Lightning's great, but what if everyone wants needs to close their channel at the same time? You know, and as you say, what if the mempool is also full anyway of JPEGs? Even worse, right? How are we going to deal with that? And of course, even in a, I, I think this might be might be wrong, but even Antoine Riard's recent like disclosure of a bug on Lightning is, I think, in some ways related to the same issue, which just keeps cropping up over and over again. Which is, well, you've got to appeal to that base chain, and if there's any any sense in which i mean somebody put it this way once which i think is really good it's like lightning changed the confirmation of transactions to a security requirement you know whereas whereas before it was just well i'm annoyed because i have to wait a bit longer to get my but now it's an actual security requirement you could lose your money if you can't confirm the transaction so that's obviously not desirable so is it obvious how do we go forward from here to get off-chain scaling that's that can scale more more robustly to even larger numbers of people, right? That's that's the question, I think. And I have no idea. Well, I want to have no idea, but I, I certainly don't know which direction things are going to go. I mean, there's ideas like what in Ethereum are called roll-ups. There's two different versions of those ideas. It's, it's I think they're pretty interesting ideas. Like one of them is what they call optimistic, which uses a kind of game theory approach. I find that to be very brittle because game theory is kind of always brittle. Like if it's a game where one guy punishes another guy for doing the wrong thing, then collusion problems occur. And still, there is something there. And if you look at something like BitVM, which has come out recently, it's kind of in that same category where there's an idea of, well, a game is occurring off chain, but if anybody breaks the rules, we're just going to be able to punish them on chain via some sophisticated mechanism, which reduces the on chain footprint. That's kind of similar to what Optimistic Rollups does, in particular Arbitrum, which was a paper written, I don't know, several years ago. And uh, then there's, I think, the more promising angle in that aspect is the zero knowledge rollups idea, which is the idea that you can provide a concise proof of fraud, which brings us back into that proper smart contract concept of adjudication is cryptographic and not based on human agency, right? So if you have cryptographic verification of whatever complex game you're playing off chain, be it the rules being violated and you can punish that, you're at least a lot closer to a scenario where you can have people transacting off chain and actually trust that they're not going to require things somebody to behave properly let's say like that but honestly that's almost a bit sci-fi at the moment because the problem is how are you going to have a zero knowledge operation verification on the bitcoin blockchain it's it's completely different from any of the opcodes that we have i mean there are there are various things like uh bilinear pairings which use different curves different elliptic curves to the to the bitcoin so this is a whole it's like a whole different world and how would you tie that into bitcoin i mean possibly simplicity would enable such a thing i don't even understand the details of how that would work i'm not qualified to say so i'm just saying that's leaving that out there is like that's interesting other approaches i mean there's been all kinds of like finesses on the idea of an off-chain transfer mechanism there's been state chains more recently there's been arc which is pretty complicated and to be honest i don't actually understand it like much at all i, I read through a description of it and i thought yeah i kind of understand what you're saying a little bit but i don't really uh so I, i'm gonna sort of hold off on giving my opinion on arc because i don't understand it but it does i mean there's clearly some creativity there maybe that's another way we can do off-chain transactions but yeah, I hope we can find, or maybe it's just a question of, I mean, for example, L2, right? I, I, I hate that name, E-L-T-O-O, <laughs> by which I mean specifically the idea of having uh, Sighash, any prev out, or what used to be called Sighash, no input, to enable Lightning to just work way more efficiently without a penalty. So it, it, it's still kind of a little bit game theory, but it, it removes that main game theory thing of, oh no, if I screw up my node and then I publish a state, I'm going to lose all my money, which is what we have to day on lightning which is kind of like one of the worst things and the fact you have to hold this baggage of all the past state it's going to remove all that plus you know with schnorr and ptlc we'll get better privacy so lightning will evolve there's no question about that but will it evolve to a state where it could support a billion people I, i'm not sure if we have a clear i mean channel factories is an idea out there which you know perhaps brings us into the whole covenant side of things because that's a way of doing a channel factories so i don't I mean i'm just blethering it there's like a lot of ideas i don't know which one is important i really don't know but from the conversations i've had with brandon black and the debates i've seen 
involving covenant proposals. It seems that for some reason, covenants are less controversial than other scaling proposals, perhaps because they're a necessarily opt-in change. You can't force a covenant on anyone. It's not changing the structure of Bitcoin. Can you comment on are covenants a finesse to the sort of scaling and the sort of usability that Lightning currently provides, or are they a step change? Are we squaring or, or doubling or, or, or multiplying potential throughput and usability by some factor? I couldn't give you like the factor or the scaling, you know, the, the ON, ON squared, whatever it is. But the question of whether it's a finesse or a step change, and the question of whether it's how fundamental of a change it is to Bitcoin structure, this, these, these are not, you know, there isn't a clear scientific objective answer, I think, to those questions. But I would say it's a more significant change than Taproot, but a less, well, you, maybe because Taproot included Schnorr, so that's another complicating factor. But let's say that I'm thinking about how the output structure works, yeah? Because with Taproot, you're changing like the structure of the, the script pub key, the output script, let's say. That's obviously a non-trivial change. It's an additional option that people have. I would say covenants are a bit more significant than that. Well, maybe a lot more significant than that, but less significant than SegWit. So I'd, I'd say there's got a, in between those two cases, it's only a vague assessment. So the thing about covenants is I, they could be quite a significant change in as much as, especially if you have the more extreme version of covenants, which allow something called recursion, where you can create situations where you can programmatically make it so that not just the next output is constrained, but like the output of this transaction, but the one after it will be constrained and the one after it. But more importantly, that could be repeated infinitely. So that's what's called recursive covenants. And that's a little bit dodgy and a little bit dicey, in my opinion. It's just a vague impression. But if you don't include that recursion, if you make things where, yeah, I can make a whole series of covenants, forcing this coin to go from A to B to C to D to E, but I have to write down every single one of A, B, C, D, E. So I can't go on infinitely. So there's it's at least finite. I, in my opinion, at least that makes it so that people are forced to like confront the reality of what they're doing before they do it, right? When you are describing recursive covenants, there is a sense of the Ethereum DAO. Right. Just this, mm. this thing, you send something yeah, okay. in. I see what you mean, though, yeah. It never comes out. Because actually recursion was actually relevant in that case because the bug in the code was called a reentrancy bug. It's essentially where you're calling the function and there's a line in the function that calls back into the same function. So it's a, literally a recurs recursive call. And that was the, the, the origin of the bug that allowed the guy to, to well, steal and lock up the money and blah, blah, blah. We all know the story, right? So there is a kind of a concrete analogy as well as a more vague analogy there with the Dow case. I mean, what I had in my head when I first heard about that, I was thinking, oh, might that mean that some two people might get themselves into a terrible situation where both of them profit from paying the next transaction in the chain so they just end up keep broadcasting the next one over and over and over again because they're trying to make money and they're just that, that's a concrete example and even if it's not realistic it's interesting because it shows in your head what what the problem might or might not be here those two people might be stupid they might have written this stupid contract that ends up where they're just wasting all their money on transaction fees on the other hand they're polluting the chain so it's the whole tragedy of the commons thing again if we make situations where people without realizing it are going to create horrible outcomes not only for themselves but maybe for others, that might be worth worth avoiding. But it's debatable. It all, every aspect of this is debatable. But non-recursive covenants just means, I mean, to address the question that is so often raised in, in let's say, less reflective discussions of the topic, the question so often raised is, well, but if, a, if there's a covenant, that means somebody could, the government or some powerful entity could essentially force me to only pay my coins to whitelisted addresses, let's say. And that argument, I mean, this this actually came out on the Bitcoin Dev mailing list. So I was like, really? You're going to make that argument? <laughs> but then Anthony Towns responded and, and made the obvious counterpoint, which is, well, we already have that. Multisig has exactly that property. You know, arguably, you don't even need multisig, but multisig certainly is the most obvious way that would exist, where, and I think people may have actually made such systems where there's a trusted third party and you have to have a cosign of the trusted third party to spend the coin, and it will only be spent to a KYC entity a whitelisted entity. So the idea that covenants somehow make it possible for coins to come under further control is just, it's just fundamentally wrong. They don't. What they do is they just give you more optionality in how you choose to constrain, emphasize choose to constrain where your coin goes such that you can make a contract such that the other person in the contract or other people 
will be able to trust that you won't steal it in the meantime. On the subject of optionality, because covenants is a rabbit hole, your talk at the Adopting Bitcoin conference was an interesting take on the open dime, or as you referenced, the cred stick from Neuromancer or some William Gibson novel, which is an interesting idea because it's always described as this device people hold. It's hard currency. It's transferable. It's non-revocable. Someone could is, is often attacking the main character to get their cred stick. And the open dime is a piece of hardware that sort of replicates this in a limited fashion, a hardware device that you can send Bitcoin into, load up, and then physically transfer. And you can verify on the device that the seal hasn't been broken, the Bitcoin hasn't been spent, and you can even verify the amount if you have uh, access to a, a block explorer. But you point out that the constraint of the open dime is the hardware and that it's not necessary to have hardware to enable off-chain Bitcoin transactions. Can you kind of generally describe this and what you imagine perhaps a, a practical use case for that technology? I think off-chain, offline, non-interactive, these phrases are all a bit woolly and a bit unclear, but they all somehow tie together into this concept that we that is sim simplest to understand as the handing over of a $10 bill, right? The idea that if we can transfer money in person without any like electronic surveillance, without anybody having a third party custodial role. If we can do that, there are clearly some advantages to, to that kind of monetary transfer. And I, I suppose also all ties in with the concept of a bearer instrument. So the $10 bill in that case I'm giving to you is a bearer instrument in the sense that as long as I hold it, it's my money. As long as once I give it to you, it becomes your money. And we don't have to ask anyone's permission to make that state change occur, so to speak. So to replicate that, Rodolfo Novak and, and those guys came up with Open Dime. I, I was going to look up the year. I forgot to look it up. I think it might have been 2016 or 2015 they came up with that idea. Very nice little uh, piece of hardware. And I think it's cool. I even use, I, I tried to find ways to use it. Uh, I remember the only time I ever managed to use it was to give it as a gift to somebody on the occasion, uh, like a family occasion. That's the only example I could find. Obviously, I didn't buy a beer with it, right? And you can e easily see why there's some limitations to that kind of money if you have to like fund it in advance and then give that specific amount of money to that person. They can't give you change. They have to verify it. And I think most importantly, which is what you mentioned, the, the biggest problem is the fact you have to trust the hardware. Uh, you could imagine using it as like a serious form of money transfer for large amounts of money even. It might, might even be quite good for that because it has this high offset quality of not being surveilled in any way as a transfer. It's not on a blockchain. But that means you have to trust this piece of hardware. And this piece of hardware almost by definition has to be pretty cheap to manufacture because otherwise, you know, it costs like $10,000 to make it, then you can't exactly make a hundred of them and they just hand them out to your friends, right? So it has to be pretty cheap. And even if it wasn't super cheap, that kind of hardware can always ultimately be hacked. And by hacked, I'm being deliberately vague with the term hacked. It could be scanning electron microscope. It could be like literally taking layers off chips. I don't know. I, I saw a recent blog post about a, uh, Stefan Thomas who lost 7,000 Bitcoin back in 2012. And he's got, he's still got the like dongle, like with the encryption key for the, for the wallet. And so this team is like using every conceivable piece of advanced technology to try and extract his encryption key because there's so much money behind it. And there is some incredible technology that would allow people, I think, to either impersonate such a device or just hack the device. And of course, by impersonate, I mean that they could somehow make a version of it which claimed to have one Bitcoin and, and, and fooled you into thinking it had one Bitcoin when actually it didn't, or or claim it claimed to not have revealed the private key when actually it had already revealed the private key. So I'm sorry if this, this description is a bit vague for people who haven't studied the Open Dime, but it, anyway, we, we don't want to have a, like, a whole lecture about the Open Dime, right? But I, I think that because of that hardware weakness, I would love that that same technology to exist with no requirement to trust hardware. Now, of course, you always have to trust hardware when you run software, right? So if I'm claiming that, well, you're just going to run a, a program and do the same thing the Open Dime did, well, you're going to be running a program on hardware. But at least if you're running it on general purpose hardware, which the thief or the attacker didn't know about in advance, then it's pretty super unlikely that they'll be able to, well, unless they're there at the time. But I mean, if they're there at the time, then you're kind of screwed anyway, right? But how are they going to, if you just take some random off-the-shelf laptop and run some bit of Python code or C code that verifies a program that says, just using mathematics that says this coin now belongs to you. It's, in my opinion, better than if you take an open dime and plug it in and check and verify like that. And the scheme you described, PathCoin, involves knowing a public key of the recipient? Yes, it does. You're right. 
generating a transaction that they can then redeem later. Yeah. So let's, let's say let's say funding a, a UTXO or paying into it, so to speak, and it, and it exists in this multi-sig to start with, or music, let's say, but yeah. And so like the OpenDime example, you do need to create an on-chain transaction, send Bitcoin to a new UTXO. But once you've handed over the data, does the recipient need to send that UTXO to their another address they control, another create another UTXO that they control to securely hold the funds? Or can they just hold that data you've given them and the corresponding private key to the secret that right. you use to con- construct it? So there are at least two different variants of what I'm proposing, but in both of them, the answer to that question would be the receiver, once they get the data from you, are immediately secure in holding the funds. They don't have to transfer it immediately, but they do have to transfer it before the overall timeout of that PathCoin object. So that PathCoin object, you might set it up with a month timeout. So if, if I set that up and then I give it to you tomorrow, you need to know that, well, you will know that the timeout is in 30 days time and you know that it's yours. Nobody can take it from you. But after that timeout, you would be in danger of somebody else spending it. So you need to spend it before that timeout. That's both versions that I... So just to be clear, there, there are two two versions I was trying to describe, although I didn't. I ran out of time in the in the talk. One one is optimistic PathCoin and one is private PathCoin. And the optimistic one is a bit simpler and it actually doesn't even use... Now I've just remembered it. That one doesn't even use multi-sig, but the private one does use a multi-sig, yeah. And is it obvious from the data you provide the recipient how long the timeout for that object is? Yeah, you would provide all that information because you would basically be providing them with the necessary information to reconstruct the script pub key of the coin, which includes a check lock time verify clause with a particular block height. I mean, you could also do it with CSV, but whatever, details. And is this PathCoin object only useful for one transfer? Or is there a construction where, like an open dime, you can load it up and within the lifetime that you've defined for it, it can be traded back and forth between a large number of people? Yeah, so it's halfway between those two. So at least so far, I've only come up with constructs that do this. I choose a sequence of it. This is why I called it PathCoin. I choose a path it can travel through. It can travel forwards along that path. At the moment, it cannot travel backwards. Although I have an idea about how it could be reset back to the beginning, but it's not very clear. Also, it's possible with some finesse that it could jump hops on the path. But this restriction is very severe and why it's more, it's the main reason it's more restrictive than something like OpenDime, okay? But with the advantage of being because it's digital and not depending on hardware. So it means I can't give it to anyone. And I think that's the main reason I'm not saying, hey, everyone, let's start using PathCoin because that's not really very practical. There, there are certain situations you could imagine it being useful. One of them is you can kind of lift this construct off chain using multisig and have two people flipping the coin back and forwards between each other. Imagine it almost like a lightning channel, but with the severe limitation that you can only transfer the whole balance of the channel backwards and forwards instead of part of it. But with a severe advantage that you wouldn't need to have an online wallet signing each update, each state update. Each state update is essentially a forward push. That's what Covenants gives you. It gives you the ability to force a coin to go into the next state. And the nice thing about that is it even works with multiple participants instead of two. One of the restrictions in a lot of off-chain designs is they kind of only really work with two parties because if one party behaves badly, the other guy has to punish the guy who behaved badly. But if it's three people and not two, then you need to know who to punish. And often you just can't know that. So one of the great advantages of the covenant thing is that by creating unilateral state updates where I force the coin to go into the next state, I don't need everyone else's cooperation. It means that we can create multi-party scenarios that are as secure as two-party scenarios. There's a big design space here. I just presented like a couple of ideas that I thought were kind of cool. And I demonstrated with my, my friend Oscar that you can I can actually just give him a USB stick and he can spend that money immediately. But that design is very limited. It's just like I've got to decide where the coin is going to go before. And of course, I can do that with like a million different path coins. But then you have other like um, scaling limitations. If you're trying to make lots and lots of possible paths, then well, that's kind of troublesome. I see. So it's more like a research project than a a project that I expect everyone to use tomorrow, put it that way. (laughs) But there is a sense of a space here. There is a sense of components that can be used in other ways eventually, given the available opcodes in the future, specifically which covenant proposal makes it into the Bitcoin consensus. 
But I would also I would also mention like the context for those who obviously haven't seen the talk is I, I called the talk Path Pathcoin and the Cypherpunk Dream for the specific reason that it's like why would you even investigate this very restricted model? It's just because I'm thinking about that original Cypherpunk Dream of digital cash where you're actually able to there's actually some opsec to it. I mean, we kind of lost that with Bitcoin a little bit where we no longer demand that idea that if I give you some digital cash, it should be really untraceable. And of course, this isn't really untraceable because ultimately it is real Bitcoin transactions. But in the optimal case, if we come up with a really good design for this, ideally, we'd be able to just hand over these cred sticks to each other in person. Or we could also do it with emails. Obviously, email is not very secure, but but you find some encrypted channel. But it's really beautiful if we can just send it non-interactively. I can just send you it. I can give it to you. There's no blockchain tracing of that event. And that pathcoin might exist in some virtual sense, but nobody's seeing a trace of transfers. Even with Lightning, it's very, has some really nice privacy properties, but it, there is still this like network trace. If the NSA is, has 20,000 Lightning nodes right now, I mean, I don't suppose they do, but let's just say they did. It's tough for them, but they can find a lot of information about payments happening. They can't find out about information, find out information about me, the $10 bill I give you right now, which I am giving him $10 right now, by the way, listener. (laughs) (laughs) That does sound very cypherpunk. Yeah. Waxwing, thank you so much for just a fascinating conversation. Thank you. I feel like we've walked or maybe run very quickly through the history of Bitcoin, and now we're (laughs) at the frontier. We don't know what's next, but it seems very interesting. I agree. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback or questions, please send them in, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com, also on WeaponX, also on Noster now, which I pay attention to a bit more than Twitter. Also, feel free to boost in your thoughts, opinions, reactions. Remember, this is a listener-supported podcast. We don't have any advertisers or sponsors. We try to create a conversation that speaks directly to our audience, so any support you can send via Boost is really appreciated. Thank you so much, and see you next time.